Morning, Hume Lake. Morning. How are you today? Nice to see you. My name's Darren, and uh, like has already been said, I'm from Fullerton, although I was from here for a long time, so it's nice to see some of y'all, and uh, nice to be back. I was thinking about it, and uh, the very first time I opened God's Word and, and preached to an audience was right here in this room in winter of 1998. This is like... Uh, it's like Dodger Stadium for me, like home field advantage, kind of. That's how it feels. So it's nice to be here. I mean, we don't have to get into the Dodgers thing, but we could if you want. All right. Let's not. If you have a Bible this morning, open with me to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, that's in the Old Testament. If you're not super familiar with the Bible, you're looking at the first half, and then you kind of got to go to the second half of the first half. So you're looking at like the second quarter. I don't know. Just look for a book that starts with D. You'll be fine. Daniel chapter 1. I am, uh, I'm excited to be at the Hume Teaching Series this week, and every uh, session, so basically this morning and then tonight and through the week, I'll be taking the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. So we're going to work through the narrative portions. Uh, each time as we go, we'll take another chapter. So tonight in Daniel 2, tomorrow in 3, 4, 5, 6. You guys are probably decent with math, and you'll be able to sort out how that works. So this morning, I want to look at Daniel chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, it says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Uh, by the way, if you're the kind of person who takes notes or you're wanting to pay particular attention, uh, I, I would encourage you to circle or underline there at the beginning of verse 2 where it says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. What's happening here at the beginning of the book of Daniel uh, is not something uh, accidental. It's not something inadvertent. It's not something that, that caught God by surprise. What's happening is tragic and difficult, but it is the working of God's power on display. So verse 2 tells us God gave his people into the hands of their enemies. That's an interesting thing just to think about over a milkshake later, right? The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, lowercase g, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans." The king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Would you pray with me as we begin? God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the way that your Holy Spirit works in conjunction with your word to convict, to transform, to inspire, to motivate, to catalyze us to movement and to action. And we thank you for the way that your spirit works in conjunction with your word to transform us progressively into the image of our Lord Jesus. And we thank you for the ways in which a text like this, a narrative story that's been told and told and told again, can not only shed some light onto who you are, but God can shed some light onto who you've created us to be and how we can live in the midst of difficult circumstances. And we pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
These young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are brought into a very difficult circumstance. They've just been the part of the overthrow of everything they know. I, we know it doesn't tell us a lot about their childhood, but we can assume that when God gave the people uh, over to their enemies, the people of Babylon, when God gave them over, that their cities were laid waste to. It tells us that the, the, the precious items from their temple were taken and placed in the house of a foreign god. These men have just uh, gone, these young men have just gone through something tragic. They've just gone through watching, likely watching friends and family members killed, watching their homes burned, watching their temples trashed. Uh, this, this isn't just like, oh yeah, we're moving to Babylon, right? They're in the midst of a difficult circumstance. They're taken uh, forcibly, removed from their homeland and moved to another place as captives. Uh, their king has been overthrown. Their God has given them over to their enemies. Uh, the temple items have been removed and placed in a pagan setting. This is, uh, this is a difficult circumstance for these guys, right? This is a moment where you can imagine they've got a lot of questions and a lot of fear and a lot of wonderings about who God is and who they are and what's going to happen to their country and what's going to happen to their future and what about the promises that God had made to their forefathers and has everything basically just been uh, turned on its ear, right? In the moment, not only are they thinking about their own lives and the lives of those they've lost, but they have to be wondering what the future's going to be like, right, in the midst of everything they've just experienced, it's interesting what can happen to us when we're afraid. The kind of decisions we make when we're afraid or when we're worried, when we're doubtful. Uh, some of you probably heard me tell a story before, but I, I, was, uh, I had to fly from L.A. to Spokane, Washington. I was, um, I was teaching at a conference in Spokane. It was like a camp up there, and I had a little layover in Seattle. Uh, so I get to Seattle, and when I get to Seattle, they come over to the, uh, the speaker system, and they say, folks, we've got a little bit of trouble with the connecting flight, so there's going to be an hour delay. We're going to give you meal vouchers. You'll be able to get a sandwich in the Seattle airport, and we'll be underway before long. So I get my sandwich. I'm sitting in the Seattle airport. I look out through the glass at the plane I'm supposed to fly on, and it's small. It's just a Seattle to Spokane, you know, kind of commuter thing. It's not even a jet. It's a twin propeller thing. And uh, so I'm watching, and the mechanic comes out, and he pulls the compartment off the deal, you know, and I'm just kind of looking at him through the windows, and, he, and he's, like, pulling cables out, you know. He's hitting stuff. He's moving things around. He's talking to other people. And the longer I sit there, the more I think, like, this doesn't seem, you know, like they're replacing a headlight or whatever, right? It feels like there's some massive thing going on with this engine, after about an hour, they come over the speaker system and they say, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're sorry to inform you, but the, the problem with the plane is a little more complex than we initially thought. It's actually going to be a four-hour delay, and so we apologize for the inconvenience, but we'll get the flight underway as soon as we can. So I'm sitting there in the airport, and I'm watching. Pretty soon, they take the compartment off the other engine. They move some things back and forth. There's guys scratching their head. There's like a whole team of people looking at it, and the longer I watch this, the more convinced I become that this is probably the day I'm gonna die. You know what I mean? Like, it's a, like, you know, you've just heard that story before of like the guy in the airport who has like a premonition or whatever. He gets like a weird feeling between his shoulder blades. I had that feeling, right? So, my, like, I'm feeling like I don't wanna, I don't even care about Spokane. I don't know why I'm going there. Like, who cares about that? Like, I wanna see my family again. I do not wanna die on this little plane. Like, what's gonna happen? And I'm sweating, my heart's beating fast. I'm really stressed out. You know, I called my wife and said all the things that I wanted her to know before I go, you know? And uh, I'm just really getting nervous about it. Finally, after five hours in the Seattle airport, they load us onto the plane, right? And honestly, there was never a point where it felt like, you know, the mechanics high-fived each other or anything. They just kind of put the compartments back on and let the people on. I don't know, they didn't feel like they fixed anything, right? I don't know. So I'm stressed out. I'm sitting in my seat in the, about midway back in the plane. 
And then the craziest thing happens. I'm like, my heart's beating, I'm sweating, I'm gripping the armrest. The stewardess comes up in front and she goes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're sorry to delay any further, but she says, as you know, we had to combine two commuter flights to Spokane uh, today because of the long delay. And unfortunately, what that means is that there are folks who are not able to travel tonight. And she said, uh, one of those people I'd like to introduce you to, this is Mrs. Jenkins. And there's this little old lady who comes up front and uh, she says, now, uh, what you might not know is Mrs. Jenkins was supposed to travel today with her family to Spokane. This is them here in the first couple rows. And there's like the first two rows of people kind of turn around and she goes, uh, because we combine these two flights, we don't have enough seats on our plane for Mrs. Jenkins. And so we're wondering if there's anyone who would be so noble <laughs> and so sacrificial and so generous and kind that they'd be willing to give up their seat to little old lady Jenkins, you know? And I was like, yep, me, I will, I will write, this guy right here. I grab my backpack, I stand up. You know, as I stand up, the, the people on the plane start to clap for me, right? <laughs> There's like applause. And I can see in their eyes, they're looking at me like, you, sir, are a hero, you know? The lady at the front, she goes, we're going to give you a $500 flight voucher. We'll get you on the first flight out tomorrow, but you'll be able to fly anywhere that our airline goes. And the people are cheering for me. And there's like this moment where I'm feeling like, yeah, I did a good thing. But in my head, I'm thinking, Mrs. Jenkins is going to die, you know? <laughs> Like, that's it for her. And at least she's old. She's lived a good life, you know. She's going to die with all her loved ones. They're here in the first few rows. At least they all sort of meet their fiery demise together. And I got off the plane, right? I was out of there, right? Now, now when I tell that story to you this morning, it sounds funny. But just take a second and think about the ramifications. This is the pastor of a church Wishing for the death of an old woman. That's what that is, right? That's, that's, and, and if you really dig down, it's, it's funny, kind of. The plane, by the way, was fine. They made it to Spokane. I don't know. I got on the next flight the next day. It was okay. But, but what happened in that moment is that because of my own fear and because of my own desire to protect myself and because of my own worries, because of the circumstance I found myself in, I wasn't thinking about the good of anyone else. I was only thinking about the good of this guy, about the future I wanted to have and the places I wanted to go and the things I wanted to do, at literally at the cost of what I perceived to potentially be the life of another human being, right? And it's funny in reflection, but it's amazing to me how often when we're tired and when we're beat up and when we've witnessed things that are difficult and when we've gone through tragedy and trauma, that our thinking shifts in a way that's motivated purely by sort of self-preservation and fear. Right? Worry and doubt. These young men in Daniel chapter 1, they have a decision to make. They've been brought forcibly into a land of exile, and in that place, while they're processing who God is and who he's created them to be and what their future will be and what's happened with their homeland and all of these other things, they have a decision to make. The decision kind of centers between what I would call uh, conforming to the, to, to the culture around them or seeing the culture around them transformed? Will it be uh, transformational or, or confirmational in some way, right? Will they be conformed by it? It's interesting when we look at a passage like Romans chapter 12 speaking to us, it says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. That's outside pressure exerted internally that then transforms the thing inside into something else. Do not let outside pressure conform you into something, right? He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What he says is, don't let the outside stuff 
Change who you are. Let what's happening inside you, the transformation of your mind, and that isn't just speaking of intellect, but let the internal transform the outside. It's very similar in, in that call. It's very similar to what Jesus says in his rebuke, right, in the woes, in the, in the gospels. When he says, woe to the Pharisees, you've done a great job of cleaning up the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside is filthy. Or he says, the outside of your lives look like whitewashed tombs. They're beautiful to behold from a distance, but inside they're full of dead men's bones, you know? He says, it's not just about what's on the outside. you got to change the inside. By this, this doesn't work with actual dishwashing, by the way, Jesus' strategy. But he says, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and the outside will take care of itself. There is a principle here for these young men where they have to make a decision. Are they going to be conformed to the Babylonian culture, or are they going to be transformative to the Babylonian culture? In this place that they didn't ask to go, where God has placed them, where they are scared and tired and worried and, and at a loss, what kind of difference will they make in this place? Some would say, you know, when, when in Rome, become like the Romans, right? Just fit in, figure out how to fit in and bide your time until maybe by the grace of God, you get the opportunity to go back home, right? Just sort of do what you got to do to stay alive and don't, don't ruffle any feathers and just for all intents and purposes, become Babylonian so you can live to see another day. That would be the advice of some. I would say that's conformity. On the other hand, we might have some people who say, no, no, don't conform to the Babylonian culture. Fight the Babylonian culture, right? Don't live a single day there, right? you got to fight against what's there. Even if that means you die, stand up on the first day and say, we won't be Babylonians. We hate Babylonians. You've taken the sacred items and you put them in your temple, and we would rather die than see you guys succeed for one minute. And they probably would have been killed immediately and dumped on the side of the road. What I'm suggesting here is that these guys make a decision that sits somewhere between being conformed to the pagan culture and somewhere between fighting the pagan culture. They find a way in the middle to be internally transformative. In the same way that Jesus would point the Pharisees to the fact that you have to be personally transformed from the inside out, we as ambassadors, and by the way, New Testament language, you look at 2 Corinthians, we, all of us who are followers of Jesus, have been appointed to be ambassadors. An ambassador by the very nature of what an ambassador is is someone who lives in a foreign place, right? Not by his own choice. An ambassador is appointed by a king to carry the king's message to the king's audience. There are no ambassadors on native soil, right? There are no ambassadors to the sovereign nation. There are only ambassadors to foreign nations. So the nature in 2 Corinthians, when it calls us to be ambassadors of the message of reconciliation, that God is not holding men's sins against them, but we can be reconciled in Christ, and he's given us that message of reconciliation, that call to be ambassadors is simultaneously a call to live on foreign soil. Does that make sense? It's simultaneously a call to live in a place of wandering, in a place that will not be your home. It's not exactly like this, because it's not a punishment for Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. They were in the midst of punishment, right? For us, it's the gift of God to be given the opportunity to be ambassadors, to live on foreign soil, to carry the message of reconciliation. But the question for us is the same. Will we be conformed to the foreign place? Will we fight the foreign place? Or can we be internally transformative? So that, that's the choice I see these guys making here in Daniel chapter 1. They're not conformed, and, and they are seeking to be transformative. And ultimately, what we'll see in our study this week is that they are transformative, but look at what's happened here, back in Daniel chapter 1. It says in verse 7, the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. For what it's worth, their original names were all God-fearing names. Their new names are all distinctly pagan, anti-God names, right? 
So don't, don't be mistaken. This isn't, he didn't name them, you know, sunshine and rainbows. He names them things that would have been, like, heretical for them to carry. He gives them new names. Not only that, it says in 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Here's what I want you to see. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have a choice to make. Are we going to become Babylonians? Are we going to learn their literature and their culture? Are we just going to fit in to save our own necks? Or are we going to fight the culture and lose our lives immediately? We're going to find a third way in the middle to remain true to what's important and to be transformative in a, in a pagan place. The answer that we see in Daniel chapter 1 is that these young men say yes to some things and they say no to other things. It's not, it's not hard and fast. They don't say no to everything and they don't say yes to everything. Interestingly, they say yes to pagan names, which is, would have been hard, I think. That would have been a struggle to be constantly referred to by pagan, like ungodly names, even though their original names, the names their parents gave them, were, were so God-honoring. And yet we don't see them anywhere in the narrative portions of Daniel fight these pagan names. We don't see them argue about that. They say yes to the pagan names. They say yes to the pagan training. They say yes to the evaluation, the education, there's a, there's a cooperation in certain things here that I want you to see. They're discerning and wise about the cooperation that, that they can afford in the midst of the circumstance that they're in. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, uh, if possible, actually, I'll back up even to 14. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, verse 18, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Right? Live peaceably. They're finding a peaceable way to say yes to some things and no to others. What they say no to or where they draw the line in Daniel chapter 1, where they draw the line is it compromising God's law, specifically with regard to the food that they're offered. The writer here does not give us any insight on specifically which one of God's laws they have a problem with. It might have had to do with the kind of food, although the text doesn't tell us what kind of food it was. It might have had to do with the way that food was prepared because there were specific Hebrew laws about not eating certain foods that were prepared a certain way. So it might have been about the preparation. It might have been about the kind of food. It could have also been about the history of the food, the place where the food had been used before and the practice that it had been involved in. There were also rules about that. It could have been all three, right? They might have been objecting to both the kind of food, where it had, been, where it had come from, and how it was prepared. It doesn't tell us. What we know is that for these three guys, while they went along with a lot of things... They didn't fight everything. They did fight this. 
But I want us to look at the way in which even that occurs because I think it's instructive to us as ambassadors, right? If to me, the most important thing God has, has given me as a follower of Christ is the opportunity to carry the message of reconciliation to my world, then I got to think about how to thread this needle to be transformative from the inside out, right? To be transformative from the inside out. The first thing I'd want you to see is their personal resolve. Their personal resolve. Look at verse 8. In figuring out what to say yes to and what to say no to, they draw the line at compromising God's law. They're going to be faithful in essential things. Here it says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Two things I would want you to see in that. The first one is this personal resolve. What Daniel is not doing is making a statement to the chief of the eunuchs about the wickedness of their food or the wickedness of their preparation. He's He's not making a speech about anybody else. What he's doing is he's saying, I am resolved and my friends are resolved not to do this wicked thing. We can't do this thing. We we just can't do it. But even as he's saying that, the thing I also want you to know, he resolves personally not to compromise God's law in this way. And then it says in verse 8, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile. I just want you to see the submission in that. I want you to see that there's a request. He asked to be allowed not to defile himself. Now, I don't don't know what would have happened. We'd have to speculate about what would happen if he'd been denied that permission. But I love that the posture of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah is one of request. It's, it's one of saying, hey, we have a problem with this food or where it was prepared or, or, or what, how it's been used. Our God has given us a strict law that we would be in violation of here. So would it be possible for us not to defile ourselves with this food, right? They make a request. They ask. I just want, I just want you to see the humility in, it, humility in it. I want you to see that it's not a demand, that it's not an insistence, that it's not a hill he's going to die on necessarily, but that he brings a request. I love uh, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talks about asking and seeking and knocking. It's really interesting. Um, it's probably Dallas Willard, but I, that might not be true, who talks about the fact that the whole thing about pearls before swine is not, is not about withholding things that people don't deserve. Like a lot of times when we think about, well, you know, don't, don't cast your pearls before swine, that the way we interpret that a lot of times is like, don't give people what they don't deserve. But that isn't at all what Jesus is trying to say. What he's saying is p- pigs have no use for pearls, Right? They don't know what to do with your valuables. That doesn't, what, what pigs want is corn. So why don't you give them something they can use, right? And in that very same conversation is where then he gives us the instruction to ask and to seek and to knock. And most of the time we think about asking and seeking and knocking, rightfully so, we're thinking about that in, in reaction to our, uh, or in response to our relationship with God. That in my relationship with God, I have the ability to ask and to seek and to knock, Right? That because of the blood of Christ, I, I am reconciled to God and therefore I have access to God. I can, I can pray and ask and seek and knock. But in the context in which Jesus first delivered those instructions, he's actually talking about our interactions with one another. He's saying there's a, there's a way to interact with each other. Instead of throwing out things that people can't digest or have no interest in, instead, try asking a question. Try seeking the, what's going on in the life of the other person. Try, try knocking instead of forcing your way in, Right? Daniel says, can I have permission not to defile myself in this way? And part of that also has to do with the fact that he's sensitive to the eunuch's fears. Look at verse 9. It says, and he gave God, uh, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. The chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age, so you would endanger my head with the king? The chief of the eunuchs goes, hey, I hear what you're asking me. I understand that it's against the rules for you to eat this food. But listen, I, 
I'm going to be in trouble. If I, if I don't make you eat this food and then you show up to be like less than everybody else, that's going to be my head before the king. Well, now the eunuch has just put on display to his captives, right, to the people in his charge, he's just put himself on display, his, his own vulnerability. He said, I hear what you're saying, but I can't take this risk because of the danger to me. And I want you to see that then Daniel proposes his test, and he proposes his test in that moment because he cares about the things the eunuch cares about. Because he hears the eunuch's fears, and he adjusts his response as a way to show compassion and care for the thing that this pagan eunuch cares about as well. He says, oh, you're worried about your own head. Well, then why don't we do a test? Let's do a test. Let's do it for 10 days. We'll just drink water and eat vegetables, and let's see what my God does, right? He proposes this test. Well, listen, what this test is designed to do, number one, is to show compassion for the thing that the chief of the eunuchs is scared about. But number two, it's a test that's proposed both to build trust in Daniel, but more importantly, a test that's proposed to build trust in Daniel's God. Right? I wonder how often in our interactions with our neighbors, or our coworkers, the people that we're going to bump into, those of you who are working on staff at Hume, you're going to bump into people this week when you're making milkshakes or you're sweeping floors or whatever you're doing. You're going to bump into people, and sometimes we don't even take the time to think, what are the things I could put in front of others to increase their faith in my God? They might not care a lick about your God. The Babylonians don't care a lick about Daniel's God. Couldn't care less. What can I do to increase their faith? What, what, sort of, what sort of things could I do to build trust with them personally and also to build their trust in my God? That's, that's what Daniel does. I remember um, when, I was, uh, when I was serving actually in Long Beach at Arbor Road Church for a little while, we did a thing where, um, yeah, yeah, what, what? Okay, so we did a thing where um, we were doing these like homeless, uh, homeless care package kind of deals. It's a plastic Ziploc baggie with socks and soap and a razor and just things that homeless people could use, right? And our encouragement at the time was, uh, here's a list of things that homeless folks could use. Put them in a Ziploc baggie and then keep them in your glove compartment or your trunk. And when you see somebody, you know, offer this to them just as a way to be a nice neighbor, right? We've been doing this for about three weeks. And uh, I had this uh, lady come up to me, a little lady in our church uh, whose name I won't mention, but Arbor Road folks, I'll tell you later. Uh, she came up to me and she goes, I can't do that, uh, I can't do that, that homeless kit anymore. She's like, the homeless people hate it. And I was like, what do you mean the homeless people hate it? She goes, they, hate, they absolutely hate it. And I was like, what's to hate? It's like socks and soap and toothpaste. Like, how could they hate it? She goes, I, they just do. She goes, I've been, uh, I've been taking it. She goes, number one, it's really hard to get all that stuff into a sandwich bag. Well, it was, number one, it was designed to be in a gallon bag. She had crammed all this stuff into a sandwich bag. So essentially what she was making is like, not care packages, but care bricks, right? And then she goes, I take these things to the park, but she's like, I don't want to get too close to the homeless people because I'm old lady and I'm a widow and I'm scared. So I stand at a distance and I throw them. But she says, I have a quiet voice, and so a lot of times they don't see them coming and they end up hitting the homeless people with the care package and it makes them really angry. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong, right? You're, you're not, you're, like, there's a, there's a right heart. There's a right heart. You want to care and you want to give, but the way in which you're doing it is problematic, right? So we rethink the way in which we're doing it. It's amazing how often ambassadors of Jesus in 2022 have the right heart, a heart of grace and love and compassion, a desire to reveal Christ in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. But the way in which we go about it is like hitting homeless people with a brick of socks, right? And sometimes the, the rest of the world is like, I, I don't know what it is you're offering, but I don't want it because of the way you're offering it. Daniel asks a question. He, he comes with compassion toward the eunuch and his fears. He proposes a test to earn trust 
both for him and God. I also want you to see that in proposing that test, it says in verse 11, Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. I want you to see that the test is not only an opportunity for Daniel to build trust with the chief of the eunuchs, it's not only a way for Daniel to build faith for the true God in the heart of the eunuchs, but it's also a demonstration and an exercise of Daniel's trust in the God who has exiled him, right? This is Daniel having been dragged from his homeland, having seen those places laid to to waste. This is still Daniel on the other side of that difficulty, in the midst of his fear and fatigue and whatever else, going, if you give us a test like this, God will show up. I don't know who you all are. I don't know hardly any of you. Some of you I know, but I, I would guess that there may be some of you sitting in the room today who are feeling fatigued and tired and worried, and doubtful, and maybe angry, certainly anxious, right? And you can get to a place where, where like, there is a part of your mind that still cares about other people's faith, but you're just struggling to trust God yourself, right? You're just struggling to, like, remember that the God who brought you to this difficult spot, or brought you to this hard season, or whatever, is the same God who also carried you through the great seasons, the good seasons, who, you know, like, it's, he's the same God, and he's still with you. I love the fact that this test that Daniel proposes is, a, is also for his own faith to grow. Does that make sense? He says, test me for 10 days. That's exactly what they do. It says in 14, he listened to them in that matter and tested them for 10 days, and at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. I think this is a clear line. We can draw a line directly between 15, between faithfulness and chubbiness. (laughs) And so, yes, my friend, we're feeling pretty good. Is that Stanton? Stanton, you're not chubby. That's like all muscle, bro. What are you talking about? Fine. There's a direct line here between faithfulness and chubbiness. I just wanted to point that out because it makes me sleep better at night. 16, afterward, the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Ultimately, listen, this is important. Ultimately, the steward is persuaded that God's plan was in his best interest. Think about that. The pagan steward who was scared was ultimately persuaded that the foreign god who he didn't believe in, that that foreign god's plan was in his best interest. It was better for him to let these people eat the vegetables and water because of who their god was, right? You see the, the growth of faith, the movement towards transformation. Not external pressure, not Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah trying to force conformity on this pagan culture, But Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the inside, living transformed lives, living lives of faith, and then watching that transform from the inside out. In the same way that our individual lives are transformed from the inside out, ambassadors have the opportunity to see a culture transformed, not through external pressure, but through internal fortitude and faithfulness, right? Ultimately, the steward is persuaded that God's plan was in his best interest, But he was allowed to come to that conclusion himself. The king tested and found them best, and they are promoted. By the end of the chapter, these four youths are found better than everybody else. They're promoted. They're given all kinds of influence in the kingdom. Not that they went chasing. Not that they demanded. But that God put in their laps. 
This ultimately, and what we'll study all week, is a story of the power of God on display. God put them there, and he can redeem their circumstances there. Hume Lake 2022, I don't know everything that's going on in your life, but if we believe in the sovereignty of God, we believe that he brought you to this moment in whatever you're dealing with, and he can redeem this moment too. He has not abandoned you. He has not disappeared. He has not absconded his responsibilities. He loves you. He sees you. He knows you. Same with me. And he'll redeem this too. And you might be in the circumstance you're in because of your own failure. Daniel and his friends were. They were in the place they were in because they had disobeyed God. Their whole nation had disobeyed God. They were in that place as a punishment. You might be in a spot in your life today as a punishment. God might be rebuking you. He might be correcting you. And he can still meet you there and transform you in that place. Their trust in God transformed that place from an inside out. We'll be seeing that all week. We have the opportunity to live such distinct lives in our world that those who see us will choose to seek what we found. Let me just quote you a couple of verses here. I'll read them to you. Verse 16, 7. When a man, uh, this is Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with them. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And then sort of famously, 1 Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Right? We have the opportunity to be people of influence, to be people who transform our neighborhoods and our workplaces, to transform the lives of the campers and conferees that will be here in, in an hour if they're not here already, right? We have the opportunity to make a difference, and it won't be through conformity. It won't be by us forcing ourselves to push people into something. Jesus doesn't even encourage that for the Pharisees, right? What he says to them is, the outside looks fine. You've got the outside nailed. Good job. The cup looks great. But he doesn't say good job. He says, it isn't, it isn't good. We can force the outside to look a certain way, and the inside can still be dirty. He says, the way of the kingdom of God is clean the inside, and the outside will take care of itself. That is true for us individually, and it's true for us corporately as ambassadors of Christ. A, a story I'll use uh, with my staff at church all the time is in this world, you know, we, we've, we've got the opportunity sometimes to see people that are living in darkness who, who don't know God, who don't care about the Bible, who could care less about who Jesus is. They're living lives of wickedness and sin and whatever. And if you sort of envision them for a second as being people uh, like in a, in a dark cave, I think sometimes our temptation as people who work in a local church is to find ways to be shouting into the cave and telling all the people in there about how bad it is that they're in the cave, Right? We want to stand at the, at the lip of the cave with our megaphones and be like, you shouldn't be in that cave. You weren't built for this cave. Get out of that cave. God created you for better things. What are you doing in this dark, stinky cave? Why would you ever want to be in there, right? And you can shout and shout and shout. Sometimes we even try and run into the cave and drag people out. But what I've said to the team at Fullerton, where I serve, is I, I want to be a church that's about building bonfires on the beach outside the cave. I want to build a bonfire. I'd like someone to be playing uh, music there. I'd like to have s'mores at the bonfire, right? Some snacks. That'd be great. I want there to be music. I want there to be comfortable places to sit. I want people to see that the Lord Jesus is light and life, right? That apart from him, 
we, we can't know light in life, that he invites us to be his sons and daughters, that in him we see the closest revelation of God that any human beings have ever seen, that he is a full revelation of grace and truth. I want to build a bonfire on the beach so that the people in the cave will progressively go, what are we doing in this stupid cave? There's a bonfire out there. It smells like they got hot dogs. There's music. There's seats. Why wouldn't we be following Jesus? Let's get out of this cave. The people will come out when we paint a picture for them of what life can be. And service and sacrifice, following Christ, we, we can abandon our need to try and conform other people and clean the outside of their cup and dish, and we can join Christ in the process of inviting people to take a swipe at the inside by the power of God's Holy Spirit, the death and resurrection of Jesus to see them transform, and the, out, the outside will take care of itself, right? When we become people of influence. Every night, we'll be talking about the same stuff. Daniel 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, we'll work our way through it. I look forward to that with you. Let me pray. God, um, I have studied this chapter, I've taught it before, I've, I've read it, and I still see places in my own life where, I am, uh, where I'm either conforming to the culture or fighting the culture rather than finding that transformative through line, saying yes to the right things and no to the right things. God, having the discernment and wisdom to follow you faithfully and know the difference between what is essential and what is non-essential and to honor you in the way I invite those around me who don't know you to recognize that the king of the universe loves them and that his plan for their life is in their best interest whether they've recognized it or not. God, will you help us to be your ambassadors and to be people of influence from the inside out. We pray that in Christ's name, amen. Dathan.